Well, good evening. Glad you guys are here for the kickoff of our new series on the life of Jesus. We are going to study the gospel of Mark, and I have, I've looked back in my notes, and I, I have no notes because I've never taught here the gospel of Mark, so I'm really excited to do this. Let's, uh, let's pray together, and then we'll jump into the lesson. Lord, thank you for this evening, and thank you that we have the freedom in this country to study your word. We pray for the leaders of our country, all the leaders of our country, that you would turn their hearts toward you, and that this country might be a beacon of righteousness and truth, your truth, in this world. In Christ's name, amen. Well, I think I tell you this every time, but here's the number to text your questions in during class, because we'd like to answer as many of your questions as we can, those of you on the live stream, those of you here in the room. We are going to talk about uh, the earliest account of Jesus' life. Now, like everything in the Bible, scholars disagree about which one of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, was written first. But in my view, it's really not a difficult question. I think the Gospel of Mark is the earliest account of Jesus' life. When you look at John is a different animal. But when you look at Matthew and Luke, you realize that most of the stories in Mark also appear in the other two Gospels. That doesn't necessarily mean that Mark came first, because they're all inspired. They're all talking about what Jesus taught. But it seems, particularly the way Mark was written, and according to early church tradition, that Mark was written first. And I think as we get into it and you read through this as we teach through it, you'll see that Mark appears to be a very early account of Jesus' life. We are going to just go a couple of chapters a week. So if you want to read along, just read along two chapters every week and you'll be right with us. We'll talk about most of the stories about Jesus. Really, you know what would be a great thing to do in this series is to forget everything you know about Jesus and let's let Mark reveal Jesus to us. I think that's really good for us because we get some preconceived ideas, many of which are biblical, but sometimes we get a little bit of a skewed picture of Jesus. So what we want to do is let's let the earliest testimony about Jesus' life inform us about his life, his teachings, and who he really is. But the first question is, who is Mark? Mark is not one of the original 12 disciples of Jesus. Mark is, there are many different ideas of who this Mark is, but I think it's the John Mark who is in the book of Acts and who traveled with Peter. And I'll tell you why as we kind of go through this, but for example, there's a guy named Mark, and here are several passages from the book of Acts. Uh, Peter went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark. So John Mark, where many were gathered and were praying. That's in Acts 12. Uh, Barnabas and Saul, or Paul, returned from Jerusalem when they fulfilled their mission, bringing with them John Mark. So they Basically, you can kind of follow this young man, John Mark, or Mark. You can kind of follow his, uh, if you will, his preaching career, his ministry career, as you move through the book of Acts. So he is in Jerusalem when Peter's there. 
He ends up going back to Antioch with Barnabas and Paul. And then, now, when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John Mark to assist them. So after Mark went back to Antioch with Barnabas and Paul, Barnabas and Paul said, let's go on a missionary journey, meaning let's just take off and preach the gospel. And so John Mark went with them. And so you see him moving along with them. Now, Paul and his company in Acts 13 set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem, but they continued on. So you see the story of this young man who joins Barnabas and Paul in a missionary journey, a lot of hardship, and for some reason, about halfway through, he goes back to Jerusalem, goes back to the parents' house. Many of you have experience of your kids coming back to live with you. Well, that's what John Mark did. He went back to his mom's house. So then, the next time they wanted to take a missionary journey, this is Acts chapter 15, Barnabas wanted to take John Mark with them. But Paul thought it best not to take with him because he quit halfway through the last time. And there arose such a sharp disagreement that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed to Cyprus, and Paul chose Silas and went on a different direction. So you get John Mark, and there's a dispute between Paul and Barnabas. Like Paul says, oh, this guy left in the middle of the last trip. We're not taking him. And Barnabas says, no, he's a young guy. He's got a lot of potential. We're going to take him. And they end up splitting. So you see this John Mark being involved very early in the ministry of Peter and Barnabas and Paul. Well, it doesn't end in the New Testament with Paul being down on John Mark. Let me go to the next passage. Here's letters from Paul later. And listen to what he has to say. My fellow prisoner Aristarchus sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You have received instructions about Mark. If he comes to you, welcome him. So Mark ends up with Paul. Church history says that when Barnabas and Mark went to Cyprus, that Barnabas got sick and died during that missionary journey. And then you see Mark and Paul reuniting later. Second Timothy, which is at the end of Paul's life, he says this, He's writing to Timothy. He says, Timothy, do your best to come to me quickly because Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me. Crescens has gone to Galatia to preach, Titus to Dalmatia to preach. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. And so kind of doing a little detective work through the letters, what you see is this young man, John Mark, being with Peter, Barnabas, and eventually being with Paul. And so there's a reconciliation. Now, going on from there and leaving the New Testament, according to church tradition, Mark went into Africa later and began to preach there and, in fact, founded a number of the churches in Alexandria, Egypt. And he became one of the leaders there when he was finally killed for his faith in Alexandria, Egypt. There's an interesting passage about the tradition of this gospel and this John Mark. 
Eusebius is a church historian. I put up here that he lived between 265 and 340 AD. So he's a couple hundred years after the resurrection of Jesus, but he's looking back and he wrote about a lot of the tradition, a lot of the things that had been carried on. And one of the things he wrote about was this Mark and this gospel of Mark. So according to church tradition, before Peter was killed, which happened in 68 AD, Mark traveled with Peter. And as he traveled with Peter and Peter was preaching, here's what Eusebius says. So brightly shone the light of true religion in the minds of Peter's hearers. In other words, the people that he was preaching to that became Christians were so interested in what he had to say that they were not satisfied with a single hearing or with an oral teaching of the divine message. They resorted to appeals of every kind to induce Mark, whose gospel we have. In other words, John Mark, traveling with Peter, they did everything they could to convince him to what? Uh, to leave them in writing a summary of the instruction they had received by word of mouth. And they did not let him go until they had persuaded him and thus Mark became responsible for the writing of what is known as the gospel according to Mark. He probably wrote that about 43 AD. Now you're gonna hear, if you read commentaries, you'll hear all kinds of different dates. But I would simply make this observation. There's not a lot of difference between 43 AD and 68 AD, I mean 25 years. I know, you guys can do the math. So. When Peter died in 68, certainly was written before that if Mark was going around with him and writing down what Peter was preaching. 25-year period, 2,000 years later, I just want you to take anybody's uh, estimate of the date with a grain of salt. I mean, think about it. Look at, if you took the Declaration of Independence, 1776, and you read it, because there's no archaeology on this. It's not like scholars are looking at archaeology and saying, oh, this definitely proves it was 67 AD. What they do is they look at the writing, and if you looked at the Declaration of Independence today and you didn't know when it was written, you would say, okay, this was not written in 2019. I mean, the language is different, the spelling is different. This is written a long time ago. In fact, it could have been written 200 years ago. And in fact, it was. But you would have a hard time pinpointing if it was written in 1776 or 1796. And that's the position that scholars are in here. So my view is this is written very early as Mark is traveling with Peter and writing down what he says. The other thing that makes this very likely, as you get into the Gospel of Mark and you just begin to read it, you're going to realize that it doesn't read like a novel. It doesn't read like a history. It doesn't have a lot of uh, what you call segues or introductions or a lot of editing. Like, you know, Jesus went here and he taught this, and then he took a two-day boat trip here and he taught that. In fact, it sounds like he just literally wrote down the stories that Peter was telling. You'll literally go from one story right into the next story. And that makes a lot of sense. Eusebius said that's exactly what happened. Mark went around and he wrote down 
the stories that Peter was telling about Jesus. So when you read the Gospel of Mark, that's the way it's going to feel. It's going to feel kind of choppy. It's going to feel uh, kind of staccato, like story, 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 story. And you'll wonder, is there a connection here? Well, not necessarily, because he's following Peter and just writing down his sermons. It would be like in your church, if you just wrote down the main point of every week's sermon, and then after you had 52 of them, you published them. Well, there wouldn't necessarily be a lot of connection. You'd simply have 52 really good sermons or really good stories. That's what the Gospel of Mark is like. So as we get into this, I'm going to suggest that it's this John Mark who's an eyewitness. According to ancient tradition, he's writing down what Peter is teaching. So that's what we have in the Gospel of Mark. Where is it going to take place? Well, we have to have a map. So it's going to start with John the Baptist, and he is baptizing. Remember, John the Baptist comes to prepare the way for Jesus, and that's how the Gospel of Mark is going to start. He's baptizing there, right in that area that I've circled on the map, near Anon, Salem, near the Jordan River. But most of the Gospel of Mark is going to happen up here in the Galilee, and I'm circling the area around the Sea of Galilee. And so as the story begins, you're not going to get a lot of preface. You're not going to get like, okay, when Jesus went to preschool, he did this. And then when he was in seventh grade, he joined the football team. I mean, you're not going to hear kind of a long story. It's just going to dive right in. And you're going to hear Jesus teaching all around the Sea of Galilee. And then about the middle of Mark, you're going to see him set his face to go to Jerusalem. And so Mark has organized this story, or Peter has organized this story, and he told about the first part of Jesus' teaching. Then he told what happened. Then he told how Jesus moved to Jerusalem and how he went to the cross and how he raised from the, from the grave. And so you'll see a little bit of a flow, but in the Gospel of Mark, it's pretty much just what was Peter preaching. I think that's a fascinating insight into what were the apostles saying. I mean, if you think about it, we know they were preachers. We knew they went around and they were telling the good news of the kingdom to people. Well, what was that good news? What's written down in the Gospel of Mark is what Peter was preaching everywhere he went. So let's dive in and let's see what he has to say. Mark chapter 1, the beginning of the good news. When I'm going to make the word gospel and good news are interchangeable. That Greek word literally means good news. When we talk about the good news about Jesus Christ, it's come down in the Christian world to call that the gospel. But it just literally means the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. So. Mark begins, and Peter begins, by preaching and saying, what I'm about to tell you was prophesied in 700 B.C., 700 years before Jesus came. Isaiah said this was going to happen. And here comes a guy named John the Baptizer, John the one who is baptizing. It comes down to us as John the Baptist. I know. You thought that he was actually a member of the denomination of Baptists, and he started it. 
But it really means John, the one who's baptizing people all the time. So this John comes. And so John came, verse 4, baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to see him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. So let me stop there for just a second. This is not the Wall Street Journal fashion edition where he's trying to tell you that, oh, he was a well-dressed guy for a prophet. The reason that, that Mark and Peter were saying this is that's how Elijah dressed. Elijah was a prophet in 850 B.C., 850 years before Jesus. And the Old Testament says that before the Messiah comes, I will send you Elijah to prepare the way. So Peter is saying, let me tell you how John was dressed. Very unusual. Camel hair, belt, ate locusts and wild honey. This is a connection. In their minds, they go, oh my gosh, when we were growing up, we heard all about Elijah, and that's, that's Elijah. He goes, yes, he even dressed like Elijah. He was a prophet like Elijah. Jesus will later say he was Elijah, come again to prepare the way. Well, what was he teaching? And this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I am, the thongs of his sandals I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie. I'm baptizing you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And so he's coming saying, I am preparing the way. In other words, you know what Isaiah said? And, and Peter's making this connection. He said, remember what the Old Testament said? The time's come. He's coming to prepare the way for the Messiah. And so John comes talking about this message of the good news. And that's one thing I want to talk about briefly. Because Jesus, right after this, here comes Jesus. And I want to talk about this good news a little bit. After John was put in prison, so Mark doesn't spend a lot of time. He moves into the next story. He says, John came preaching to prepare the way for Jesus. And then immediately, when he was put into prison, if you remember, he told Herod, Listen, you are not living a godly life. And Herod said, seriously? Do you not realize I'm the king? I think I'll just throw you in prison. And he did. And so immediately, here comes Jesus. Let me pause for a second. What questions do we have at this point? Uh, most of the stories that we see in Mark that um, Peter was teaching, was he teaching to the Jews? Good question. Peter was teaching mainly to the Jews. If you remember the book of Acts, Peter begins teaching to Jews who are becoming Christians. I mean, think about Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. He stands up, speaks in tongues, I mean, speaks in languages, and 3,000 people become Christians. So he was mainly preaching to Jews who were believing that Jesus was the Messiah. But if you remember in Acts, God sends him up to Caesarea, on the sea, which is a Gentile area. It's like a Roman city. 
and has him go meet a centurion there and teaches Peter that, listen, Peter, this good news is not just for the Jews, it's also for the Gentiles. But the question's well put. Mainly, Peter appeared to stay in the area of that we would call Israel today. So in the area of Judea, most of the people he was preaching to would be Jews. Hence, he begins by making that connection with the Old Testament prophecy. Good question. When the Holy, when the Holy Spirit is mentioned in the New Testament, as it is in this quote from John the Baptist, mm -hmm. how would they have interpreted that? Did they have an understanding of the Holy Spirit? That's another great question. The Jews of that time understood that the Spirit of God was a real being and that the Spirit of God could indeed do miraculous things. I'll give you an example. Think about Samson. Now, Samson is living in the era of the judges, and let's just estimate that at 1200 B.C. So you have the law of Moses, then you have the story of Samson, the strong man. Well, in that story, which every Jewish boy and girl would know, God's Spirit comes upon Samson and gives him this incredible power. And if you remember, he compromises and compromises and finally gets a haircut, gets a buzz, and the spirit it's not that his hair had the strength in it, it's that the Spirit of God left him because he had become so unfaithful. So they had an idea that God's Spirit, God's presence, could be in the world, but it was very selective. In the New Testament, Acts chapter 2, you see the Spirit of God literally being poured out into all Christians. And I don't mean poured out in the sense that every Christian has to have miraculous powers. I mean, there are some Christians who believe that. But Ephesians chapter 1 says that all of us have the Spirit inside of us when we placed our trust in Christ. So they had a, a kind of a limited view of the Holy Spirit. They knew the Spirit of God could do powerful things, but they didn't have the sense that the Spirit of God was in all of them. And that's one of the things that knew in this gospel, this good news of Christ. Great question. So they had kind of a limited view of that. Well, Mark jumps, and Peter jumps right in from talking about John, and he just talks a little bit, jumps into talking about Jesus. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news, or the gospel, the good news about God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. I actually want to stop there for a second, because if you've ever wondered, what was Jesus preaching? I mean, think about it. Jesus is going to spend three, three and a half years going around telling the good news of the kingdom. What's, what was he preaching? I mean, think about it. Well, this is what he was preaching. He said, the time has come. God is invading this world. The kingdom of God has come. And the kingdom of Satan and the sin is no more. In other words, the kingdom of God has arrived. You want to join, become citizens, be adopted into the kingdom of God. And what do you need to do? Repent and place your trust or believe, same Greek word. For us, a better translation is trust. So repent and trust in what I am telling you. 
believe, trust in this good news. That's what Jesus was preaching. Repent. Repent means to turn around. It means to change direction. He said, look, you've been living in this worldly way. The kingdom of God is here. There's a new way to live. Why don't you come here and let's go a different direction and trust me. Trust this good news that God has entered the world. So let's leave the uh, disciples for a minute because I want to give you an inscription because I want you to get a feel for this idea of good news. It's one word in Greek. And I want you to understand how it would have, they would have heard this word. When I say gospel to you in the 21st century, you think, oh yeah, we're Christians, gospel, that's that whole Bible thing. That's what we do at church. It's, you know, it's all this forgiveness and all that. Great. But I want you to hear it with fresh ears. This is an inscription, and it uses this same word. Listen to this. This is about the emperor, the Roman emperor, Augustus. So this is in the time of Jesus. It seemed good to the Greeks of Asia. This is an inscription. In the opinion of the high priest, Apollonius, he's a high priest of pagan gods. Since providence, which has ordered all things and is deeply interested in our life, providence was a goddess, has set in most perfect order by giving us Augustus, whom she filled with virtue that he might benefit humankind. So this is basically saying, we are dedicating this to Augustus, whom the gods and goddesses have given to us, sending him as a savior, both for us and for our descendants, that he might end war and arrange all things. And since he, Caesar, Augustus Caesar, by his appearance surpasses all previous leaders and not even leaving to posterity any hope of surpassing what he has done. Okay, this might be a little sucking up. All right, basically saying Augustus is like the best ever, right? And since the birthday of the god Augustus was the beginning of the good news, the beginning of the gospel for the world that came by reason of him. So that word good news, that word gospel, when they heard it, they understood it to mean there's something that's happened in the world that's going to change all of our lives. And sure enough, Caesar Augustus changed everybody's life. If you think about it, and I won't tell you all the history of this, but basically Augustus became Caesar. He's Caesar when Jesus is born, but he was successful in conquering most of the enemies of the Roman Empire, and he ushered in a long period called the Pax Romana. In Latin, that means the Roman era of peace. In other words, people prospered under his rule. Because he had peace, there wasn't war, there was trade, everybody actually lived a better life. And so they made inscriptions like this, that the god Augustus coming into this world was gospel, was good news. It changed all of our lives. So I want you to hear this with fresh ears. So when this passage, let me go back to our passage, when they said, Jesus is preaching this, the kingdom of God is near, repent and believe the good news. He's saying something that's huge. He's saying, oh, something on the order of Caesar Augustus becoming emperor 
He's actually saying more than this, but think about what they would have heard. In other words, something that's going to change all of your lives has happened. And so I want you to think about the gospel in that way. It's not just a message. It's not just a, oh, here's some Jews over here talking about this new thing they've got going and this Jesus who was crucified and raised from the dead. No. Jesus is claiming way bigger things than we typically think about. He's saying what's about to happen is going to change all of your lives. So I just wanted you to see how they would hear that in that time. Well, as he went on, he walked beside the Sea of Galilee. He saw Simon, that's Peter, and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, which the Sea of Galilee is a big lake, for they were fishermen. Come and follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. And so he went a little further. He saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, two more of the disciples, preparing their nets. And without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. So I want to talk about that for just a minute, too. This idea of them leaving their family business and following Jesus we kind of skip over that sometimes and we think, wow, that's pretty impressive. It's more impressive than you think. One of the things that's been excavated in Israel recently, so we're going to take a little detour here because I want to tell you what kind of boats they were in. I want to show you what kind of boats that they were in and what they were doing. This boat is in a museum in Israel on the shore of Galilee. It's called the Galilee Boat. You can look it up on Google and read all about it. This boat, it, and what's left of it, and there's a lot of it left, is literally from the time of Jesus. It was buried at the bottom of the lake in the mud, and it was preserved for 2,000 years. This boat dates to this era, and this is what they were in. This boat is interesting because the way this worked, this boat has been patched a lot. In fact, they did a lot of uh, archaeological analysis of the wood, and they can tell you exactly where it was patched and almost kind of when it was patched over its lifespan. It appears that this boat was used for about 80 years because boats were very expensive to build in those days. And so literally, you would have a family fishing business, and you would pass your boat down from generation to generation. This boat was in use for about 80 years before it was sunk. We know when it was sunk, totally different story, very interesting, but a different story for another time. But this boat had been passed down to generation after generation. Here's a, a reconstruction. This is the kind of boat that Jesus and his disciples were in on the Sea of Galilee, on the lake. And that's the size that this boat would have been. So not very big. Uh, you can easily understand why when the waves came up, it was not a safe thing to be in in the Sea of Galilee. But the point I want to make is for them to leave and follow Jesus wasn't just, oh, we're going to go follow you, we're going to become disciples, we're going to have our picture in all the Eastern Orthodox churches, and all the little kids are going to learn about us. I mean, that's not the deal. They were breaking a tradition that went from generation to generation. So when you think about following Jesus, and we read things like this, especially things like in Mark where Jesus said, come and follow me, I'll make you fishers of men, and they did. You think, oh, well, okay, sure, I would do the same thing. No, 
I want you to stop and think for a minute that they're literally breaking a multi-generational cycle. They're giving up a lot to follow Jesus. It's a costly thing to them. They're giving up the family business. Zebedee's like, oh my goodness, where are you boys going? Who's going to take over the family business? Right? I mean, it was a very costly thing to them. So even though Mark records this in just a couple of sentences, I want you to have the feeling that this was a big deal. This was their life, and it would be their kid's life. And so that encounter with Jesus completely changed the trajectory of their life. Make sense? So the second passage has to do with Jesus. Comes right in after John. John's arrested. Jesus begins to preach. He says, repent and believe the good news. In other words, believe this cataclysmic event that's going to change everybody's life. When it goes on, very next passage, it says, so the disciples that he just called went with Jesus to Capernaum. And when the Sabbath came, so on Saturday, the Jewish Sabbath, the seventh day of the week, Jesus went into the synagogue and he began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law did. Teachers of the law would be saying, okay, Moses said this and Moses said that, and you're allowed to do this and you're not allowed to do that. Jesus came teaching in a very fresh way as though he, he literally knew what God wanted from them. Just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So this is the evil spirit speaking. So first of all, what's an evil spirit? This evil spirit is a demon. What's a demon? A demon is an angel who has rebelled against God. Satan is the leader of the angels who rebelled against God and said, we're not going to serve you anymore. I, Satan, have decided that I will be God instead. And in fact, I'll see if I can get these humans to worship me and serve me. And so Demons, or these angels at times, were able to possess people. They were able to inflict pain, suffering, difficulties on people. And so the demons know exactly who Jesus is. Listen to what he says. What are you here for? Have you come to destroy us? So first of all, they know he has the power to destroy them. He says, we know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. You are the Chosen One of God. And Jesus sternly says, shut up. Be quiet. It's not time for that to be known. And by the way, come out of him and free this man. And the evil spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this? a new teaching and with authority. He even has the power to give orders to evil spirits and they have to obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of the Galilee. So let's just stop and think about, we're not even through the first chapter of Mark. What does Mark want to get into? 
He doesn't want to spend much time with John. He just wants you to know, and Peter wants you to know. God said this was going to happen. It happened. John came preparing the way. Then we jump right into Jesus and said, by the way, I'm going to fix this date in history for you. Our faith is rooted in real historical events. He said, when John was put into prison, Jesus began his ministry, and he came preaching, repent, because the good news is here. The kingdom is here. You need to believe the good news. He went into Capernaum, and he begins to preach these stories of things Jesus did. And you'll notice that the first several stories he preaches establish Jesus' authority, that this is not just some traveling, self-help preacher. This is not some guy to tell you how to live a better life and have straighter, whiter teeth and children that get better IQ scores. This Jesus has real power. And so the first story that he tells is this idea that he has power over the spiritual realm. We've never seen anybody who could literally do this. And so pretty quickly, Peter in his preaching and Mark in his writing wants to establish the idea that Jesus has authority, that this isn't just another prophet. Think about it for a minute. Malachi is probably the last book in the Old Testament. I mean, it it is the last book in your Old Testament, but I mean, it's historically probably about the last book. And so from the book of Malachi until the appearance of Jesus is about 400 years. And that's a time of silence. It's like God had all these prophets, Elijah in 850 and Isaiah at 700 and number of prophets through the 600s and... Then you have Nehemiah and Ezra and Malachi in the 400s. And then for 400 years, you hear nothing from God until, boom, here comes John the Baptist saying, get ready, something cataclysmic is about to happen. And here comes Jesus marching into the world. And so he comes not even as a prophet to tell you what God has to say. He comes with authority. Let me show you what I mean. Next, next passage. This is, just, this is one after another is what Mark's going to tell you about. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Filled with compassion, this is a powerful story, Jesus reached out his hand and he touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately, the leprosy left him and he was cured. I need to tell you a little bit about this because that story would have just knocked them over backwards. The way uh, cleanness, ritual cleanliness worked with the Jews, holiness, being set apart. In fact, before you went into the temple to worship, you would walk down into what's called a mikvah. Think about like a hot tub. Okay, so you walk down into the hot tub and you immerse yourself, you're baptized, and then you walk out a different way and you are ritually clean. I mean, are you clean, clean? Well, that wasn't the point. I mean, it's not like, did you use enough soap? Are your hands really clean? Uh, You know, like at our house, when our boys were little, Laura used to get on them and say, you know, the whole idea of washing your hands is to get them clean. Why is there so much mud on my towel? But the point is not to get your body clean. The point is you are ritually, symbolically saying, before I come to you, I immerse myself in water, And now what I'm about to do is special. It's set apart. So you would become ritually clean. Now, 
When you are ritually clean, there are a lot of things that can happen to make you unclean. For example, do you remember the story about the Good Samaritan? So here comes a priest, he's walking down the road, there's a guy who might be dead. Well, if the priest goes over and touches that guy, he's unclean. The priest can't do his duties for seven days. He has to fast and become clean again. In other words, become set apart again. That's part of why they passed by and didn't stop to help the guy. They were more interested in staying clean before God than they were in helping this guy. But the point is that you could become unclean by touching something, but you could never make that thing clean. For example, if you touched a leper, first of all, that was considered a bad hygiene move because they didn't know what caused leprosy and they thought, maybe I can catch it. But the point is, if you touched a leper, you became unclean. There was no way for you to make something clean, but anything that touched you could make you unclean. Notice how Jesus turns that upside down. He touches the man. That in and of itself was like, oh my gosh, you touched a leper? And not only that, it didn't make Jesus unclean. He made the man well. He made him clean and said, you go show the priests. And the priests are going to go, oh my gosh, yes, you are fine. You're right with God. You're clean before God. What Jesus is doing is really powerful. And that applies to us as well. You see, when we encounter Jesus, we become clean. We become healed. We become whole. The law of Moses, behavioral codes, could never make something else clean. But Jesus could. This was a radical story to them. It's like, you're kidding. He even has the power to make other things clean? For us, if we touched him, we would have to fast for seven days. We couldn't go into the temple. But he actually healed the leper. Jesus makes things clean by touching them. So you have the story of the exorcism. You have the story of Jesus being able to heal and make clean things that are unclean. And then the third story is this. A few days later, we're just going right through Mark. When Jesus entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. By the way, most of you think of this story uh, as happening in somebody's house. It's probably Jesus' house. You see, Jesus had moved to Capernaum from Nazareth because Capernaum was a bigger village. I mean, it was a pretty major center at the time. And Jesus had moved there, and that's where he was kind of home-basing. So think of Jesus doing, you know, he's like renting a place, right? So this is Jesus' house. So when you hear this story, sometimes you think, oh my gosh, they destroyed that poor guy's roof. It's Jesus' roof they destroyed. So when Jesus had come home where he was living, and so many people gathered, there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. What did he preach? Repent and believe this cataclysmically good news. Something big is about to happen. Well, some men came bringing to him a paralytic, a guy who was paralyzed, carried by four of his friends. Since they couldn't get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus. And after digging through the roof, they lowered the mat the paralyzed man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. 
while some of the teachers of the law were sitting there, and they're thinking to themselves, why does this guy talk like this? No prophet, nobody has the ability to forgive sins. They said, he's blaspheming. Only God can forgive sins. And immediately Jesus knew that this is what they were thinking. And he said to them, why are you thinking this? Is it easier for me to say your sins are forgiven or to say, get up, take up your mat and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Notice this idea of authority again. He's got authority over the spiritual realm. He's got authority over diseases. And he has the authority to forgive sins. Sometimes people say, and they like to look at Jesus and go, you know, Jesus was a Jew who was trying to reform Judaism. He never claimed to be God. Oh, this is a big, blatant claim. And so he says, it doesn't matter if I say you're healed, get up and walk, or if I say your sins are forgiven. But I said that so you would know that I have the authority to forgive sins. And so he turned to the paralyzed young man and he said, I tell you what, take up your mat, go home. He got up, took up his mat, and walked out in full view of everyone. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. It's just, if you think about what Mark's doing, I want to step back a little bit, and what Peter was doing is, what are the first things he talks about? I want us to understand the passages, but I want you to understand why are they preaching what they're preaching they immediately begin talking about his authority over demons, his authority over uh, illnesses, and his ability to for even forgive sins on earth. And so they begin to talk about Jesus' authority. From the very beginning, what Peter and Mark are saying to us is, this Jesus is not just a self-help teacher, this is the Son of God. That's what Mark is leading you up to at this point. Let me pause. What questions do you have? This goes back a little bit, but um, is John the Baptist's death in any extra-biblical accounts? Is John the Baptist's death in any extra-biblical accounts? I believe Josephus talks about John the Baptist's death. I cannot remember which passage it is. But Josephus, I believe, records that. But that's, to the best of my knowledge, that's the only extra-biblical account of John the Baptist's death. Of course, the Bible tells about his death in great detail. Mark doesn't. I mean, you know, Peter wants to get right on to Jesus and he begins to lay the groundwork that, hey, I gotta tell you about this Jesus. Remember he said he was gonna do something cataclysmic and you're like, oh really? What is he, another Oprah? Is he another TV preacher? No, let me tell you what this guy can do. You know, this is not your average person. So he didn't spend much time in Mark, but in the other gospels you learn you get a great account of what happens to John the Baptist and why it happens. But I believe Josephus is the only extra-biblical account that I can think of that talks about John the Baptist. So Mark wants to talk about this idea of his ability to forgive sins. Now, let me pause and just do a little sideline on this for a moment, because forgiveness is one of the things Jesus is going to talk about to us. And if you think about it, this is another turn the world upside down kind of a thing. For example, our world thinks that to show real power, you don't forgive people, you basically get even with people, right? Revenge, I mean, I know that it's not popular to talk about revenge. It was in Kentucky where I grew up. I mean, it's all about revenge. If somebody did something to you, you need to do something to them. 
Honestly, in the Middle East, same thing. Strength comes from showing your power by being able to retaliate against somebody. So this idea of revenge is really important, but look what Jesus does. He doesn't come and say, oh, I have the power to take some bad guy and zap him. That's not what he does. He says, I have the power to forgive. Jesus turns it upside down, and he takes strength, and he says, real strength is not revenge. Real strength is forgiveness. My son and I were watching a special, I believe it was on Netflix, about, okay, you're going to say, how did hockey enforcers get into this lesson? Okay, follow me. So hockey, you guys hockey fans? Me neither. But the point is, there are people in hockey who are known as enforcers. And you know what their job is? Their job on the ice, and they're big, and they're mean. I mean, they look mean. They are intimidating. Their job is basically if somebody knocks their star into the wall, their job is to go beat them up. They basically get paid to go fight and intimidate the other team. So they're also good hockey players, but they're called enforcers. And their job is, the refs may or may not call this, but even if they call it and you get two minutes in the penalty box, oh, that's nowhere near enough. That guy has got to have some pain in his life. Their whole point is about revenge. In other words, we're going to stay safe because if anybody touches our star, we're going to make you pay. And I don't care if I have to spend an hour in the penalty box, you're going to bleed a little bit. Well, that's our world, isn't it? I mean, it was a fascinating documentary, by the way. I can tell you're all going to go home and watch it. But basically, it it's really does reflect our world, and that is if you want to show strength, then you do unto others as they have done unto you. Or better yet, do unto others before they can do unto you. But you notice that when Peter's talking about Jesus, and when Jesus is preaching to us, he's not saying, I'm going to make you so strong that if anybody does anything to you, you just let me know, I'll zap them. Now, I admit to you, there have been times in traffic where I wished that was the way it worked. You know, like, Lord, just zap that guy right there that cut me off. But it's not the way it works. Jesus says real strength is in forgiveness. And so you begin to learn about Jesus. Think about what you know, just quickly, boom, 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 boom. You just go right down these stories. You learn that Jesus is powerful, but Jesus is forgiving. Jesus doesn't come as a despot, as a ruler who says, everybody's going to serve me. Instead, Jesus comes with some humility, and he appears to be willing to serve other people. So as we step back and say, let's forget what we know about Jesus, what does Mark want to show us? The first thing Mark wants to show us is that Jesus is powerful and that to Jesus, power is service. Very upside down way of thinking about things. One more story. Chapter 2. Once again, Jesus was out beside the Sea of Galilee, and a large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. And as he walked along, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. This is Matthew. So Capernaum is a big city, and one of the reasons it's a big city is that's where the tax collectors are. That's the, it was literally on the border between two kingdoms. And so when you had a trade, kind of interstate commerce kind of a deal, when you came across, you had to pay tax. In other words, to bring your products, you had to have uh, a tariff. Think of it as a tariff 
on the goods that you were bringing in. And so Matthew, or Levi, is one of the guys who's doing this. And so Jesus said, follow me. And Levi got up and followed him. Now Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, and many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many people following Jesus. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he do this? When he heard this, Jesus said to them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the people who are righteous, who are already right with God. I've come to call the sinners, the people who are not right with God. This is another upside-down story. Let me tell you a little bit about Matthew. So his name is Levi. This is so ironic. His parents, are, his parents have to be mortified that he's a tax collector. It's like being a traitor. But it's even worse. His name is Levi. If you think about it, way back in history, let's go all the way back to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob, 1800 BC, I mean, 2,000 years before this, has 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, one of his sons is named Levi. Well, Levi was a special tribe. All of the descendants of Levi became priests. Only the descendants of Levi could work in the temple. Only the descendants of Levi could prepare the sacrifices and make the offerings to God. Only the descendants of Levi could light the candles in the temple and do that sort of thing. It wasn't a job they put out you know, on the internet and you could fill it with anybody. Only descendants of Levi. Well, obviously, Matthew is named, his Jewish name is Levi. He's a Levite. He's one of the tribe of Levi. And what is he doing? Is he working in the temple? No, he's not doing something holy. He's doing something that's so obscene to them, he's collecting taxes for the Romans. I mean, the irony of his name is just like, oh my goodness, this guy should be a priest and he's sold out to be a traitor to the Romans. And yet Jesus says to him, you come follow me. Remember when Jesus says, I came for the sinners? I don't know if you've thought about this, but Levi's like, oh, wait a minute. What are you saying? Yeah, you're a sinner. In other words, Jesus didn't say, oh, these people are really good people. No, he said they're sinners. But I came for them because there's hope for them. And that's something powerful for us to remember too. What was he telling these sinners? Was he saying, you guys are good, you're fine. Deep down, I know you all have a really good heart. No, that's not what he's telling them. What's he saying? Repent. You need to change your ways. Why? Because the kingdom of God is here. You need to believe that I am who I say I am, and you can see these miracles that prove to you I have this authority. Now change your life. Turn away from a life of sin and follow me. And Levi does. He begins to follow him. Jesus assembles one of the most unlikely group of disciples. I think I've told you this before, but I want you to think about Levi or Matthew. That's the name we most know him by. I want you to think about Matthew as wearing a three-piece suit. This guy's got money. This guy is an executive, and he's here collecting taxes, and he's here dealing with a lot of money, and he's got an IRA. I mean, he's got all kinds of money and wealth and status. The Jews hate his guts, but he's an up-and-comer in the Roman world. So he's wearing a suit, and Jesus says, hey, why don't you follow me? And he gets in, and he starts following Jesus. He looks around, and he goes, these guys smell like fish. 
you know, what's the deal with these guys? Their hands are rough, and Peter, oof, man, take a bath. You know, you smell like fish. He goes, yeah, I've been fishing this morning. And so he gets in with these guys. Then he realizes, oh my gosh, you have this guy, Simon the Zealot. Simon the Zealot is like a radical. I mean, the Zealots used to carry these uh, knives, the Sakari. They used to carry these knives that could be slipped into the back of their cloak, and they would get into a crowd, like at a public event, and they would come up behind a Roman soldier, or they would come up behind a Jew who wasn't being a good Jew, translated into people like Matthew, and they would stab them and swiftly get away. So they terrorized people by saying, if you're not a good Jew, if you're cooperating with the Romans, we're probably going to kill you. Matthew's looking over at Simon. Think about Simon. He's all tatted up. He's been in prison a couple times. He's got piercings. He's got a bunch of metal. And Matthew's like, what have I gotten myself into? And so Jesus collects this unlikely group of people to follow him to say to you and me that it doesn't matter what your past is. You can be an upstanding Jewish kid. You can be a blue-collar worker. You can have lost your way like Levi and be completely off track, but you can all follow me. And so Jesus begins to develop uh, his following. So in the first two chapters of Mark, what do we learn about Jesus? Because that's what I really want us to think about is, let's look at it with fresh eyes. He wants to tell us that Jesus began by saying something really cataclysmic is about to happen. And you can trust what I'm saying to you because I have the authority from God to say this to you. I can command even the demons in the spiritual realm. I can heal people uh, of leprosy. I can forgive sins. And you begin to realize, whoa, this Jesus is something we've never seen before. Maybe he is trustworthy. And that's what Mark wants to talk to us about. Well, next week, he's going to continue, but as you might expect, Jesus quickly gets in trouble with the authorities, and Mark and Peter quickly want to start to talk about how this conflict starts to happen, because the conflict is essential for the cross to happen. So here's your interesting theological question. If the Jewish authorities hadn't come into conflict with Jesus, could God's plan have worked out? I'll leave you to puzzle that till next week, and we'll talk about it. Thank you, guys.